Hello and welcome to Screen Queens, the podcast that dazzles you with a deep discussion of drag in cinema. We are your dynamic duo of myself, Rue Jazzle, and... CJ Banks. Now, from the perspective of two fabulous drag artists and our very special guests each week, we're taking a strut down Hollywood's history of drag portrayal to see what they got right, what they got wrong, and all the glitter in between. Yes, and this week we are going back, 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 back to old Hollywood with the 1959 black and white comedy, Some Like It Hot, with our very special guest, Glasgow's very own drag and burlesque artist, classic beauty and kit in a corset. It's Petit Moore. Hello. Hello. How are you doing this fine evening? I'm doing great. How are we all doing? So what we always do first is we'll like have a little chat about our background to the movie, a little bit of production notes, and then we'll dive into that plot. So when did you guys first see this film? Around about four hours ago. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I first saw this movie in my third year of high school. So like 2013, I'm going to say. That's disgusting. It was like for some, it was for some sort of situation of writing an essay. And I was like, I've seen Marilyn Monroe once. I'm going to watch this movie. And like being, what, 14, 13 at the time? I was like, what is this? It was just the strangest, but so glamorous at the same time. I don't like old Hollywood films because I'm a sucker for a Hollywood storytelling device. I don't like artsy films that don't tell a story. I don't like old Hollywood films that take two hours and introduce... Do you know one of my biggest criticisms of this film? Every male character looks exactly the same. I can't tell the difference between anyone. And for me, it's like a movie is a story. If it's not telling the story well, I don't want to pay attention to it. I I was on Twitter during this film. I'm not going to lie. It's that old. I cannot wait for your uh, deep, deep critiques of this film. I think you're the only person that hates it. it. (laughs) <laughs> and it's, it's not specifically this film it's just I have a problem with any film that fails to do the first job which is entertain and tell a story <laughs> okay well I strongly disagree and I, I was raised on old Hollywood films my grandma loves them my mum loves them and I think I saw this years ago it's one of my mum's favourites this this film appears on many lists as one of the greatest films of all time i read somewhere that it's the afi the american film institute ranks it as the funniest film of the 20th century and actually the second place is tootsie which we'll look at in a few weeks time so i think it's funny that two of the top well the the two top films of the century are both drag movies which which is interesting i find it interesting that the label comedy is used for either this film or i'm not sure but tootsie i'll watch it the day before (laughs) <laughs> I, the thing with Some Like a Hot it's a very particular type of comedy it's a screwball comedy which they were like very popular around the depression era and they kind of they like influenced like classic Hollywood cinema and like they still do to this day in so many ways and it's all about like the fast talking wordplay witty lines the absurd scenarios and a lot of the humour is like based around like the battle of the sexes which is very much what this, this film is about I, I think overall I love this film I think it's it's very much of its era. I think obviously it's it's long and there are some issues with pacing and narrative, but I think I I, I laughed more at this film than any film we've watched so far. And 
I think it's humor and I think it's morals still kind of hold to this day considering it's that old. For me, I I think I can only really watch old Hollywood films of this ilk if someone does a director's cut today and like sharpens it up and makes it snappier because like there's so many scenes that are too long tell us uh, information that's not important. Like I would watch this if it was like shortened to an hour and a half, an hour and 45. I think that it's far too long and it gives us like, it gives us character development on the villain. Like, I don't need to know that. I just need to know he's the bad guy. I don't care. I don't care. Tell me a, tell me a simplified story well than like 20 different lines going everywhere. We'll get into it. Yeah. The thing is back then, going, going to the cinema was like a whole, like a whole day's activity. So you'd be there for hours. So films back then were much longer. And I, I guess people back then did have l- longer attention spans because cinema was more of a novelty than it is nowadays. So I guess you're just a very much a uh, short attention span millennial. So there you go, CJ. 100%. And one of the main things that I was howling at is I read into all those like best film of the 20th century reviews. One of the reviews had the audacity, the audacity to call this film a spry, quick-witted fast that never drags. If you ignore the pun of drags, yes, it does drag. It drags on about 20 minutes too long. I'm just hearing bitterness. I'm <laughs> just hearing... <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just better that I don't look like these two lovely ladies. That's what I will say. One other fun, interesting thing about this film, um, I, I think in many ways it is quite groundbreaking for its time. I think a lot of people... I think it's revered for that reason because it broke so many barriers for comedy and representation of gender for its periods. And a lot of that is because of this thing in Hollywood called the Hayes Code. That was kind of the precursor to the like cinema certification. So like, of course, we have like PG, 13, 15 these days. But before that, there was more just like, an, like, a, like a set of rules that films had to adhere to about language and uh, sexual scenes and, and violence and things like that and that was kind of active from like the, the 1930s to 1950s 60s and this film kind of marked the end of that era where there was still there there was like an, a, a new demand for more adult content in cinema but i mean if, if we look at this film anyone can watch it even like a child like a lot of the humor is innuendo so I think it's, it's, it's interesting that for the time, this film was so shocking, but it's really quite tame for today's perspectives. Mm, yeah. Well, I actually read that it was banned in Kansas for its contents, as well as actually boosted up in its rating in Memphis as well because of the adult content within it, which in nowadays, their version of adult content is like, wow. you can see that in a PG movie. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, so yeah, like obviously Marilyn Monroe is one of the main stars in this and two things on that. A, I've never, this is the first film I've ever watched Marilyn Monroe in. I've never watched a Marilyn Monroe film and I gave her like zero credit I, for like acting. I thought she was renowned as like a really bad actress. Um, but watching this, like she actually does an incredible job. Like I think her character is one of the most believable like sellings of a character in this movie. Um, But I read into a bit about one of the biggest struggles of the production of this was Marilyn being in like a troubled place during filming. Um, And it took like, on average, it took 35 to 40 takes for Marilyn to do like one line um, because of her addiction problems and stuff. So it's 
it's wild to see someone like looking as if they're triumphing on screen because of their portrayal, but knowing that they were struggling behind the scenes. Um, yeah, uh, uh, that, for me, it's like it's it's great to see Marilyn in like such a uh, kind of great time in her life, but also a bad time in her life. Like showing her craft and showing it well despite the personal struggles she's going through. Yeah, I, I I find it quite sad watching her. In the, I mean, I, I love her and like one one of my like all time favorite like blonde icons, um, as a blonde queen. But yeah, I think it, it's sad watching her because you really you do see her pain resonate through that character. I think because they are kind of similar. I think the character. I, I mean, I, Sugar Cane. I think was made for Marilyn. It was. I think that role was made for her, like completely. It suits her so well. It wasn't actually. It was made for Mitzi Gaynor. Um, Which, I, yeah, I read that as well. And that's very surprising. Because when you're watching it, you're like, this, everything about this screams Marilyn. She's kind of playing a character that's almost like a parody of the way you perceive her. It's very interesting. Um, but yeah, as you say, like it was kind of at the end of her career and she, she, she would only make two films after this. She would only complete two more. The character of Sugarcane is such a reflection of her life at that time, being this troubled character who falls in love with men one after the other and always ends up not working out in her favour, so she's always in some sort of run. And it's, it's almost like a massive me- a metaphor for Marilyn's life story, which is really heartbreaking in hindsight from watching it now. Yeah. One of the, one of the only other things for production, um, so obviously this was in 59, and there was the option to film in colour. And did you all both read the, the reasons why it wasn't done in colour? Yeah. Did you know this, Petit? So No, I uh, actually didn't read this. The, like, in Marilyn's contract, it said this had to be in colour, but they did t- colour tests with the two leads in full drag, and they said it was unacceptably grotesque. And they, had to film, they had to film in black and white because they looked so bad that... You know, it's an old drag queen track. If you're posting something on Instagram, you put it in the black and white filter, it looks a little bit better. Um, <laughs> and Marilyn, like, Marilyn was like, no, it needs to be in colour. She saw them and she described the two actors as ghoulish. So they <laughs> stuck, with, stuck with the black and white. Um, yeah, I thought that was really, really funny. CJ, I'm surprised that's not in your contract. <laughs> you know what? Uh, CJ will only be photographed on the left-hand side and in black and white. It's not a sketch of makeup on I'm going to say another production was actually, I don't know if any of you know this uh, female impersonator or drag queen, Barbette actually came in to coach um, Lemon and Curtis about the situation. Well, Jack Lemon and Tony Curtis, shall I say. I have them all noted down. Yes, not just the surnames, you know, she's close personal friends, Jack and Tony. First name basis, first name basis. No, um, she actually came in and coached them, which I think is great, especially considering she was a very um, high-revered, drag queen of her day and a very big performer and i will say i think what like the teachings that she passed on to them i think they are quite evident in their acting like there's there's a definite like posture and characterization of like when they are being female and stuff and i think that like seeing them be taught by a drag queen about how to be a female impersonator it does resonate with the portrayal on screen that we see um only other production thing was obviously Jerry, who is played by Tony Curtis. Um, no. That, so Jerry, right. Joe is other way around. Joe is Tony Curtis. Jerry was originally meant to be, it was offered, I believe, first to Frank Sinatra. 
and he didn't show up for the audition is the chat on Reddit, uh, Wikipedia, not Reddit. Reddit. Um, <laughs> the old Hollywood Reddit. I wonder if I, you know, I hate these old films, therefore I hate these old actors. I wonder if Frank Sinatra thought this would ruin his reputation or be a, 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 a bit like a, a stain on his career rather than it being lauded as one of the best films of all time and stuff. But T, what do you think about his reaction to that audition and stuff? Well, Frank Sinatra in his time was known to kind of do the same type of movies as a lot of actors and actresses at the time would. It was yeah. very much he would do gangland type of um, very serious, very macho men. So I think for him, the idea of being feminine in any case, he thought would completely ruin his career. And also, I think when you get given this chance to do a character that's completely out of your comfort zone, back then it was never seen as an opportunity as much as like a death sentence for your career. Yeah, I think back in the day it was like, you are the, the leading man, so you will, uh, you will be successful if you play a leading man in every single film that you're in. To do something outside of your archetype, your typecast, would be seen as like having to scrape the bottom of the barrel because if you're a successful actor, a male actor, you're always romantically the strong male lead and stuff. So like doing something that isn't in that space makes you seem a failure at the intended acting that you wanted to do. Mm. I mean, one thing I will say is that at that time, Marilyn was the biggest star of this film. And I mean, that's evident in the fact that she is top billed in everything. I mean, the first name you see when the film starts is her name. She, Even though she's kind of, I think she only appears a good bit into the film and she's not there that much, really. She's probably like the third biggest character, but she's not definitely not the main character. Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon were kind of just coming into their big stardom um, at that time. So it wasn't, they hadn't done any, any, any major films before that. I think it shows Marilyn's star power that the role wasn't written for her, but she expressed an interest to play it. And it was like, oh yeah, of course, of course, Marilyn. Like as soon as Marilyn says, I want that, she gets it. And it just shows like how powerful she was back then. Yeah. One last thing I had written down as well is I was thinking about the choice that they set it in the 1920s, because obviously the film was made, made in the 50s, but it's set in the 20s. And I was thinking why they made that choice. And obviously the it allows them to play on lots of tropes of the era, like gangster culture and prohibition and kind of like jazz music and all those things. But also I was thinking maybe it was also a practicality thing for the men doing drag because the fashions of that era were quite masculine and that the kind of dresses that women wore at that time were kind of loose. They weren't, they weren't like cinched in or feminine. Like if they were to set that film in the fifties, I do not think that Lemon or Curtis would look as feminine in like a Grace Kelly style Dior silhouette dress. Like that would just not work for them because it's very hard to pull that off if you're like a masculine, big shouldered, muscly man. Yeah, well, I actually read that the main reason for the plot being in the 20s was because it was based on the St. Valentine's Day massacre that happened in the 20s, which is basically this big gang shooting that happened and it does lead into the plot. The main plot line is based around, based around these two guys running from the gang who basically caught them walking in on a murder. So it was like he, the director, found this plot line and thought this is the best plot line for them to be running the entire film because anything else wouldn't seem as important 
or as crucial to the storyline the same way that would be. Yeah, there's not many guys who would pretend to be women and if their life didn't depend on it, basically. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> then I'll put on that fucking bell hat, the cloche. <laughs> then I'll put on that Tam Shepherd's nice little Marilyn wig. Delicious. You know, both of them were in a nice Tam Shepherd zone. Uh, I, I know that the listeners of the podcast can't see, but I'm actually wearing a Marilyn right now from Tam Shepherd's. Uh, not lace front. There's no need for that in the 1920s. There's, there's no need for that. One last thing I'll say before we, before we dive into the plot is that the last time that I had someone do my makeup was when I was doing a Some Like It Hot photo shoot with Lacey Rain. And suffice to say, after that, I will never let anyone else touch my face with makeup if it's not me, because they basically took a photo from this film and based the makeup off Tony Curtis on me. And I think the word makeup is a bit strong. <laughs> That's a very strong word choice. So there. yeah, so I was Tony Curtis and Lacey was Jack Lemon, and I'll 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 post the photo on the on the pod Instagram at Screen Queens at some point, but it is diabolical. And we did a photo shoot in the transport museum on these trains, and we and. I will say when I did post that picture, honey, it was in black and white. We were not posting that in colour because we looked like men. We looked like How many followers men. did you lose because of that photo? <laughs> did I have any followers at that time? No, and I didn't deserve any. So let's dive in. So the film starts in Prohibition era Chicago, winter 1929 to be precise. And there's a hearse carrying a coffin full um, of moonshine. Uh, it's pursued by some police, there's a car chase, and there's gunshots. It's quite a dramatic opening scene for a comedy film. Well, like, you you go into this thinking it's going to be this sort of romantic comedy with this drag twist. And when you get this opening of instantly a police chase, gunshots, it's, like, quite crazy because it's instantly, like, windows are being smashed. There's a coffin that's being shot into. And especially because it's in black and white, it's so dramatic. It's, yeah, it's kind of not what you'd expect from this film, especially with like with like a title that's kind of like raunchy, like some like a hot. It's kind of not what you'd expect. So there's a slight twist there. Let me tell you, unless this is the, the DreamWorks Disney picture, uh-huh. unless this is the Disney film, up, I don't want nine minutes of no dialogue at the start of a film. That is unacceptable. Where's the, where's the exposition? I had to wait like 10 minutes to even get to the band, right? That needs to be cut. Cut that. Di- that's a minute and a half. Okay. So <laughs> this is gonna be a fun that's episode. Like, it's gonna be a fun no episode. Until, like, <laughs> I have no notes until like twenty-five minutes in because nothing happens until then. Okay. You're really <laughs> selling this great. film. Really selling it's this great. film. Go watch it. Don't pay for it. Just watch. It. <laughs> so they arrive at this funeral funeral parlor shop, and it's a facade for a speakeasy. The cops are going to raid it. Inside is packed with people boozing, a jazz band, showgirls. And here we meet the heroes of the film, musicians uh, Jerry, who's a double bassist, and Joe, who's a saxophonist. They're complaining about their money problems. They've borrowed money from every girl on the line. And they spy the cops and immediately pack up and leave out the fire escape while the police arrest everyone. The next scene is them kind of struggling with getting a job. Joe's trying to convince Jerry to put money on a dog. And they find out about this all-female jazz band called Sweet Sue and her society syncopators, who are down a bassist and a saxophonist. 
and they briefly kind of just casually of course of course it happens to be those two just cash very <laughs> casual coincidental one might say it's an absurd comedy cj accept it okay what you've described in about two and a half minutes there about 30 minutes of the entire film <laughs> i would have preferred rajazzo reading it on screen than watching it <laughs> the things i've written down the girls in the prohibition were tapping with no tap shoes on unacceptable <laughs> Uh, if you see the police officer there and you're like we need to escape and yet you still take your instruments drop them and come back tomorrow girl no they need those to make money that is that is their only way Uh, of making money of course they're going to take them they're expensive if i think the police are about to raid the bar that i'm working in you can bet damn well i'm leaving my wigs and my shoes sitting in the dressing room i'm getting out because they'll be sitting there tomorrow when it's locked up I yes, was gonna say your fucking life first. I was gonna say CJ doesn't need to worry because no one would be stealing that. <laughs> <laughs> no one's stealing your wig, CJ. They briefly consider the idea of dressing as girls, but Joe is very much less less enthused by the, the the idea of that. But yes, on the way to another gig, they stumble into a group of gangsters in a garage, and this is Spatz Columbo and his henchmen. And they're enacting revenge on an informant who's called Toothpick and his men. And Joe and Jerry witness these shootings, which, as Petit said, was a, a kind of a, a reference to the Valentine's Day massacre. And they just about manage to escape and realize that their, their life is at stake and they must get out of Chicago immediately. So their only option is to join this girl band. And I do love the scene where Joe calls the agent and puts on the girl voice, which he manages to master straight away. But I, I love that. And the, the next scene is them miraculously, straight right off the bat, walking in full drag to this train. What do, what do you guys think of their outfits? They're something. So they, They're there. They put them on and I'm so happy that they were so brave enough to wear the outfits that they chose to wear. No, um... I mean, they I love the leopard print one. That's cute. Great for them. You know, I'm very good. For, it's very good for you. I wouldn't do it, but it's good for you. No, um, it's very much like I love the leopard print one, but I think the problem with the styling is that it's clearly very heavily emphasised that these are men in women's clothing. So there's not a lot of attempt to pad anywhere beyond the breast. There's not a lot of attempt to put any makeup on other than lipstick, like. You'd be happy if there's a little bit of red lipstick on them. That's as much as you can see I from black and white filter. I would, pay, I would pay a lot of money to see the photos of the colour tests. I want to see exactly what they look like. That I want to see the unacceptably grotesque facade <laughs> of these two handsome women. If I was to describe <laughs> these women, I'd say handsome. Who do you think pulls it off better in drag? Do you think it's Curtis or Lemon? Curtis, hands down. Yeah, I'd agree. I like, think he pulls Lemon, off the voice and he has the pout. Lemon, if anything, and, and drag term is known as a brick. Um, <laughs> yes, yes. I, was, I struggled to know which one's which, but le- who, who is Daphne? Lemon. Lemon. Yeah, Lemon's much better. What? She, she's soft. I think Lemon looks better in drag than, than Joe. Viewers, don't listen to CJ. This is CJ's yeah, opinion. Don't listen to CJ. Um, I, well, yeah, Josephine has the voice, that lovely shrill female voice. She has the pout, she has the walk. And I think she's better at maintaining the character than Daphne is. Daphne will break quite a lot of the time. But I, I, I guess that kind of like feeds into more of their personalities because Daphne slash 
um, Jerry's more of a joker, whereas Joe slash Josephine is more of kind of like a, a scheming womanizer who kind of knows what he wants and he'll do whatever he has to do to, to get that. Yeah, but uh, uh, while they're while they're walking to the train, they are beginning to realize what it's like. Uh, to be a woman and to be wearing women's clothing. They're complaining about the skirts are drafty in the cold Chicago winds and the heels are uncomfortable. Do you guys, do you think that this film is quite woke for its era in some ways and say in the sense that it's showing men what it's like to be in the female experience? The thing is, I think it's, I think it would be if this film wasn't a comedy. Like, every time they complain about what it's like to be a woman, aka, like, what it's like to dress like a woman, it's played as, like, can't wait to get this off. It's been so, you know, tough. It's not, like, there's no honesty in the, the kind of, like, seriousness of it. There's there's a lot of segments here where it's, like, it's not misogyny, but, like, how the other half live. Um, and I think that if they dealt, if they had, like, a, moment of like levity where they were like this is what we put women through but no they're like oh it's so drafty and then they go and continue behavior which is extremely misogynistic so no i'm not like i don't think it's woke i think it's played for laughs no i i do agree to an extent because as a comedy everything they are saying and complaining about is expected for a laugh it's never meant yeah. to be oh these heels are painful why do women wear them why do we put women in them why is this a social um cue but it's very much like oh these heels are sore and i'm a man in heels so that should be funny as very much like everything it's pointed out is meant to be a laugh rather than a moment of understanding i, I think like if, if if at the end of this film these guys were like i have a better understanding of what women put themselves through to try and appeal themselves to us therefore i'm not going to perpetuate that behavior i would have respect for them but they they like are still attracted to the women who do these stupid things. So it's like, they're not trying to break the cycle even though they've had a taste of how horrible it is. Also, if they think those 1920s inspired biscuit eaters are sore, wait until they wear pre-marked stiletto and then they can complain. (laughs) Not biscuit eaters. I will say, when we're talking about fashion, um, Marilyn walking for the train with that turban with a peacock feather, incredible. All of her looks are stunning. I I did note about that scene there that every single scene with Marilyn in it is so sexual and raunchy and she is played as such like a sexual object the entire film, especially this scene where pretty much the first moment you see her, there's a long zoom of just her butt walking. (laughs) Very like Drag Race runway where the second shot is just their butt walking along the runway. The line that I wrote- We can can see your beard and they do an actual zoom up on Jackie Cox's face. It's not, it's just (laughs) wild. And there's also like the, the, the steam that is like firing onto her as she's walking along the, the train platform. I don't quite know what that's. I guess it's kind of like an ejaculation almost on her. That's what I read I mean, this it was, as. This was, this was after the seven year itch. So maybe it's like a Easter egg reference to the steam up the grate. But yeah, she's hot and steamy. And the line that, uh, that um, Daphne says is, that's just like jello on springs. They must have a built-in motor or something. It's a whole different sex. Now that they're in feminine clothes, they're realizing that it's not, you can't just like put on these clothes and become a woman, that there's a whole, there's mechanics to it. 
<laughs> it's a science, if you will. Yeah. Being a woman is a science. <laughs> what did you think of the fact that Josephine, or what, Joe sticks with the name Josephine, but Jerry chooses Daphne. Why do you think that is? I think it's very clear throughout the movie. Like, Joe is clear on what he's trying to do. He's there to escape and then leave the minute. But every time he's kind of finding a new plot line, however, he's very much sticking to the guns. This is my story. This is who I am. Whereas, like, you can tell uh, Jerry is just, like, all over the place, like, bouncing around, doesn't really know what he's doing. So the minute he gets into any panic, he'll, like, instantly change up or instantly do something that's not to the plan. Yeah. He's definitely more scatterbrained and he's yeah less less determined in what his goals are than Joe. I, I, I resonated as a character more with uh, Jerry because you're like, oh, she's scatterbrained. I'm like, she just wants to have fun in the situation. And that's very me. <laughs> if, if this is... This is Joe and Jerry as the Scream Queens. I'm definitely the Jerry. I'm like, I'm just gonna have fun with it. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna run and see what I can do. <laughs> especially with the marriage thing later, I was like, me house down boots. I was gonna say, as this plot thickens, it really is just CJ. <laughs> when it's like, uh, why why would a man marry a man? And I go security. We will get to that. So we next meet the conductor of the band, Sweet Sue, who's not that sweet. And we meet the band's manager, who's called Beanstalk. I do enjoy when she quite a few times will shout that throughout the film. They get on the train and they meet all of the other the band members. And Jerry is very excited for the prospect of being around all these beautiful women. But Joe tells him to control himself. I, I thought it was interesting, there's one moment where... Joe tells Jerry that they're now on a diet as women and no butter, no pastry, no sugar. That's an analogy though, you get that. Well, I know know they're referencing sugar, but I think it's also they're realizing that they have to to maintain this cover of women. They have to stay skinny. No, no, no. No, that's not. It comes from um, Jerry says in the analogies, like I had a dream when I was a kid that I was in a bakery and I had free reign over all these baked goods, as in him being, him being a man amongst all these women is like a kid in a candy store with free reign. So he, the, the other man says to him, this isn't your dream, no, uh... no butter. As in, like, y- you can look, but you can't touch. Like, you think that you're a fox among the hens and you can have your way, but as soon as you reveal yourself, you are. Because it starts out just no butter, no... What's the other one? Pastries. At the start, the first time he says it, it's just no pastry, no butter. And then, of course, she's called sugar and it fills in the analogy. No butter, no pastry, no sugar, whatever. See, I can spot an analogy. Wow, you're clever. (laughs) They're they're getting on the train and Beanstalk is standing at the door and they trip up. And instead of helping them up, Beanstalk just smacks them in the ass. Just (laughs) casually. It's like, I'm not going to help you up. I'm just going to smack you on the ass. Honestly, CJ, for old Hollywood films, this is tame. For like, for sexism and for a lot of things that watch any other old Hollywood film and they're rife with much, much worse. Hitchcock is so full of sexism, racism, a lot of things that would not fly these days. This, this film oh, is tame for those things. We get, we get there later on in the film. Don't jump just yet. <laughs> so on the train, the, the two guys are... One thing I'll say is that for the past few films, whenever like I'm 
talking about the main characters, I'll, I'll always say the queens, but in this sense, they are not queens. So I'm saying the two guys because that's what they are. But yeah, the two guys <laughs> Those are... Those two men. <laughs> they are adjusting to life as women, in inverted commas, and they go to the bathroom to fix Daphne's boob and they stumble upon Sugar having a cheeky little drink from her hip flask. And again, like we have Marilyn being so over-sexualized, you immediately, the camera will focus on her stockings. She's just like a, a sheer sexual object. And we can learn more about her. She's running away from, from something, from past relationships, from whatever. She's, she drinks when she's sad, which is a little bit eerie, as we were saying. The line that is a recurring thing that she says is, she always gets the fuzzy end of the lollipop. What do you guys think of the character of Sugarcane? Miss Sugarcane, honey. Miss Honey. She, she was robbed on season 11. <laughs> you know, she was great in that purple challenge. Give her that. She looks great in that purple gown, yeah. No, I was going to say something that is recurring with her character is that she almost contradicts herself sometimes. Something that she says a couple times is that she's always running away from saxophone players because, and obviously we know at this point that Joe's character is a saxophone player and basically she puts this kind of uh, still built character arc that you know saxophone players are lousy they only want her for one thing and then they leave her and almost to an extent describes Joe's character before he starts dressing up as a woman mm. you kind of see his character change from what he is known as this player who uses well he used the woman in the secretary office to get something that could possibly save his life rather than uh communicate her with her in another way that is like more civil it's more how can I seduce you into getting you to do what I want I I, I feel like this is the beginning of I, I feel nothing but like sympathy for Marilyn's character in this because I especially like the ending of her character we'll get to it in the plot but like this is the beginning of we see what she wants in life and in love and she is swindled into thinking that she it doesn't make basically like she, this is the exposition of her character and i think that it sets out quite an unfortunate character and i don't think that character gets anything good in this film at all she has a lovely bracelet you can find better ones in pre-mark what well, i will say what, what i will say uh, a ukulele in a jazz band? I don't think. <laughs> I don't think. She's just the singer. I don't know why they even gave her the ukulele. There's no need for that. She's she's the singer. She's a great singer. She's a fantastic singer. But no, like as I, as I kind of said, the character of Sugarcane is very much uh, a Marilyn parody in itself almost. And she's playing that airhead blonde who all she wants is to marry a millionaire and be a kind of kept woman. She's kind of not that interested in the way a man is other than what's in his wallet. And if he in some way is, it, it, I mean, she talks a lot about she wants a man who wears glasses and reads the Wall Street Journal. So it's more kind of, she's looking for a certain class of man rather than uh, like, a, she's not looking for like a, a handsome man or like a certain job. She's looking for, she, she, she wants to be part of a certain class. That's what she's looking for. Can you blame her? Very true. We've <laughs> been there. So yeah, they're rehearsing and Sugar is caught with her hip flask. It falls out of her dress. But Daphne takes the blame 
to be her sister. Now, I will say, I think you're going to disagree here, CJ, but I think the script has so many hysterical lines that made me laugh so much. The line where they, the Sweet Sue clocks the bullet holes on the double bass. And she says, how'd they get there? And uh, Daphne's response is, mice. I was already so annoyed by that point, it didn't even register as a joke. <laughs> and they said, what was your last job? Square dances? And they say, funerals. The, the, for me, I was so out of it because they do that rehearsal on the train where the band is playing. And she doesn't actually touch the strings of the bass as much as she spins it round four times yeah. as if that's part of playing the double bass. You know, I mean, every double bass player spins it round. And then just goes, but you just takes a hand across all of the strings at once. That's how you play a double bass. I did not know CJ was the master of how to play an instrument and how to do it well on screen. But it's like, see if see if you're gonna pretend to play an instrument on screen, at least like pretend to hold some fingers and some like even like pluck them. But see just to take your fingers and just strum across like it's a harp. Unacceptable. If I'm going to critique the film here, I will say that from someone who has played in orchestras and in like music groups, that you would not have a double bass and a saxophone sitting side by side because they're different areas of a of a of a of, a, of an orchestra. And, and you wouldn't have a ukulele in it. You wouldn't probably wouldn't have that. And also, you would not be having full conversations whilst you're playing because the conductor would fully slap you in the face with their baton, so that would not happen. <laughs> yeah, like, there's enough, there's enough pause for the saxophone for them to have a full conversation before he yeah. has to go back to going, bruh, 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 bruh. He's, he's playing very convincingly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's also at this point where one of the main flaws, not to, you know, Adam's apples belong to lots of different people, but they are also very prominent on these two handsome ladies. <laughs> and I, I think... As someone who struggles with a very prominent Adam's apple myself, that is maybe one of the first indicators that these two people are uh, to be, uh, you, you can't delve into, you know, the trans representation of like women with Adam's apples, but it's something that no one seems to address when it's very evident. I, I mean, there's lots of scenes where it's surprising that none of the women clocked that they were men, like when they're in pajamas, when they're swimming in the sea, when they're, I don't yeah. know, in a bath. There's lots of scenes where you're like, hmm, I, re I reckon they probably would have clocked it. I mean, there's a scene quite soon after this where it's in the middle of the night and they have a kind of a, a, a forbidden drinking party and uh, Sugarcane jumps into bed with Daphne and is right next up close to her. I'm like, mm, I think you'd clock the stubble if she's been in drag all day. You clock that shadow. You would clock a lot of things. And then she's tickling it her, clutching her feet. Shadow. Her wig would catch on the stubble and it'd pull it off. <laughs> I've been there. You rub up against someone, it takes off half their face because you get so much stubble. <laughs> that is one thing I will say, is there's not one scene of them shaving other than the opening where they say we need to shave. Like, there are so many inconsistencies, but obviously it's a piece of fiction, so nobody's, unless you are a drag queen, you are not looking for that consistency of, they're not shaving that day. That would clock that right away. Never mind that day, you shave for a brunch, you've already got five o'clock shadow for the, for the night time, for the early evening crowd. <laughs> That's a you experience? That's not a me experience. That is, that so. is a me experience. <laughs> One thing I did love and that I might uh, use for a future reference is using a hot water bottle as a cocktail shaker. That's genius. That is genius. 
that is great especially when you're in those work the world coffin beds you just need to smuggle whatever you can that that's how i'm smuggling booze onto drag race and hot water bottle can we talk <laughs> about like the the scene where they're in those beds and she is apparently going to sleep in a wig and what looks like eyeliner as well like i know they don't wear a lot of makeup but there's something dark around the eyes and i'm like i get the ruse of like oh we are women we're going to bed with our hair or whatever to go to bed with makeup on is a bit like, what? But they still need it because they're blokes. Other thing that doesn't resonate for me as a compulsive liar is you don't drink alcohol if you're trying to swindle and you're trying to stick with a storyline. Like the first thing to do when you've got a secret, stop drinking. True, but remember you know I mean? that the whole point, the whole a big part of Daphne's character is she's bad at keeping up the act. And she's, as we say, she's quite scatterbrained, so she wouldn't even think about that. Whereas you'll notice that Joe, during the party, is very much like, I'm going to stay in bed, I'm not, I'm not getting involved. One point I had as well, kind of going back a little bit, was this, this film has lots of musical sections that are all led by Marilyn. They're all, I mean, many are very iconic. Like later on, you have that I Want to Be Loved by You, which is one of our most well-known songs. I think it's interesting that every film we've looked at in this series so far has musical sections. And I think it's interesting that drag movies almost always have that as a feature to them because drag is in essence a very like performative thing and that these films are about putting on some kind of show in a way. You can tell a story with music just as easily as you can tell a story with drag and they are like intrinsically linked, yeah. And again, every single film that we've done so far has been turned into a musical. There's a, there's a new one that's being written that was meant to come out in 2020 as well. Oh really? Is it called Something Like a Hawk? Yeah. Wow. I think it's called Something Like a Hmm. So the the two men, the blokes, have developed a relationship with Sugar and they're both kind of vying for her affections whilst also trying to maintain their disguise. She she admits that because she is a very kind of a, a sexual person, she joined this band so she wouldn't be tempted by any men or saxophone players. On this trip to Florida, what she's looking for is to marry a millionaire. And a lot of the comedy in these scenes is kind of seeing these men realizing that they're trying to put on this act of being women and that they cannot make these like flirtatious passes at Sugar. So they arrive in Florida and right off the bat, there's a line of bespeckled millionaires on that uh, boardwalk waiting for the, waiting for the girls. <laughs> so vile. That scene was the first point that asked me attention. I was like, what? I'm like, where is this line when I arrive at the club? And how did I get this line arranged? <laughs> I was about to say, CJ's on her way to Miami, Miami, Florida right now to find that hotel and that line of men. I think that was the first time that I was like, like this is a film meant to kind of, not fetishise women, but it's like, oh, they know that there's a woman, a woman band driving, so they all sit down their papers and just sit and like, openly stare like there's no like oh we're happening to watch it it's like oh there's women and i put down my paper adjust my glasses and get ready to stare like what is that the comedy aspect relies and this might be going a bit too bit little forward in the plot line is that when they are all getting their instruments in the millionaire who comes up to them is first attracted to as a Jack Lemon's character mm -hmm. and is instantly like trying to strike up a conversation and flirt with Daphne. Yeah. And like she's clearly not interested. She's clearly trying to um, push him away, yet that only keeps him more and more interested in her. And the comedy lies in that fact is like 
out of all of these gorgeous women in this band, it is funny that he's attracted to the more masculine one out of them. Uh, and not to, spoiler alert, but not to ruin it, I wrote, he's a fag, the definition of a chaser. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, obviously, I had no idea about the plot of this film, which we'll reveal later, but I thought, he's a fucking fag. <laughs> So right, we're, we're we're talking about Osgood Fielding the Third, who I think is I think he's a hysterical character. He makes me laugh a lot. That's who um, I'd want to play. I mean, you've got <laughs> CJ. You've got the mouth for it. He's got a he has got a cash register scary mouth. She's got see, the mouth and the hairline. Ah, <laughs> uh, he yeah. I've he, got the he, hairline, but sometimes when I when I see him, I just want to say Zowie. You know, it just comes out of me. <laughs> Zowie. So yeah, so he he is he's smitten by Daphne. Uh, the line that he says that I wrote down is. There's one thing I admire, a girl with a shapely ankle. So he's clearly got a, he's got a cankle fetish. A lot of the dialogue between him and uh, Daphne, it's like, it's ridden with innuendos that I think for the time were probably quite risky. He talks about uh, going deep sea fishing, which is maybe a reference to Camelingus, maybe? I'm thinking. Potentially. We'll have to ask Halloween. And he's, he, he says, uh, pull, oh yeah, Daphne says, pull in your reel. Osgood says, do you use a bow or do you pluck it? So it's all just kind of like slightly saucy, but subtle innuendo. And then there's a scene in the elevator where they go up and then I think Osgood gropes her. And then it's almost kind of like a cartoon where the elevator goes back down again, relating to what's happening. But I think all, all of these, as we're saying, like all of these scenes are depicting the way that women at that time are treated by men and preyed on very much. Uh, there's also the concierge who's hitting on Josephine, who's that kind of little guy. Can we talk about this guy? First of all, I was like, he's literally 15. And then yeah. second of all, I had, to, I had to go back and watch it two or three times because I thought I was convinced that was a drag king. I was convinced that was a female actor playing a teenage male role. I'm still not convinced. I was waiting for the, the secondary plot of that person being revealed to be a woman the entire time. I know to, to our eyes, this film is so extreme and so ridiculous in, in, the, in the depiction of men flirting and being very like creepy with women. But I think it is meant to be a parody. I think it's meant to show how ridiculous it is. And that is kind of like an element of screwball comedies is the kind of back and forth between men and women and showing it in like a ridiculous way. So we're not, we're, not, we're not taking it as real, we're taking it as farce. Going back to the comedy, I think what really makes this a really well-rounded and like good comedy, especially I think it is the commentary on how much of a farce flirting with women is, and the whole idea that the kind of quip whips between both Daphne and Osgood are really good and like really well-timed. And it's like a really good, like, it is like a whole scene where they're both just going back and forth before the elevator goes up. And I think my favourite part is Osgood and Daphne when they interact because it is probably the funniest parts. Yeah. I agreed that it was funniest parts because I read it as a homosexual flirting relationship because <laughs> he's a chaser. But yeah, he, he um, won't... He, but it is kind of like, I mean, we, we, we've all dealt with chasers and we know that they do not take no for an answer. They will, like, they are relentless. They were yeah, as charming as Osgood, then maybe I'd have a different answer. If they got a yacht, then you're, you're fully in there, CJ. Oh, uh, oh, mama. <laughs> one line yeah, that I want to pick up on just as soon as we talked about the bellboy when they get to the hotel room one of the only lines that I've written down to analyse from this film is the 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 section where she's um, Daphne's just been pinched in the lift and they get to the room and she says I'm not even pretty 
and uh, Josephine replies with, it doesn't matter as long as you're wearing a skirt. It's like waving a red rag to a bull. And uh, Daphne then says, well, I want to go back to being the bull. Let's talk. You know what? Like they're, they're admitting that that is a reality for women, that women, no matter how they look, they're going to be hit on by men. That, that is what the world was like back then. I guess the unfortunate thing is these men are not admitting that's wrong. They're just admitting they'd rather be on the other side of it. And for me, that's one of the biggest things about it. It's like, at no point do we see that sink into the like fiber of their character. They're like, this is horrible. So instead of stopping this behavior, I just want to be the one doing it, not the one receiving it. Where's CJ the has a burning hatred for this movie. Burning, I burning hatred. After 20 minutes of nothing happening at the start. Let's talk about swimming in the sea and the plot cord. No one should be swimming in the sea. No. Yeah, so as you're saying, the next scene is Daphne goes swimming with the girls. I'm like, did she tuck? Did she shave her legs? Is she swimming with her wig on? There are so many questions. There is specifically, she cut, she's wearing a swimming cap and then they come out and there's a, she's got the cap on, it cuts away and it cuts back and the wig is magically there as if she had it under the cap the whole time. Mm. I was like, where's this Jackie Cox stop motion cap wig? <laughs> and did she, how did she like set her makeup with, like with what? Because how, uh, d- does she have waterproof mascara? Did that exist back then? Like, who knows? I think the word makeup is the, the, the mistake you've made there. <laughs> I, think, I think it was a fresh face and a little bit of rouge. Yeah, bit of rouge yeah, in the lips, a little rouge in the cheeks. Pinch the cheeks, definitely. Yeah, it was a, um, <laughs> it was a Tom Harlow 15-minute uh, face. Very, very that. <laughs> very, um, riding room we've been 15 minutes, what can I do? Yeah. Yep, 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 yep. Meanwhile, while Daphne is swimming with the girls, Joe has created this new persona called Junior, who's an heir to the Shell oil fortune. And he's a a bespeckled millionaire designed to woo sugar. I think only Petit might get this reference. And I'm thinking, is this meant to be a parody of Cary Grant? All I want to know is, at what point did he think that accent was ever going to work? Well, that's what I the think. The accent? Well, that's the thing. That's why I think, I haven't like seen this written anywhere, but I think he's a parody of Cary Grant because it's the glasses, the transatlantic accent which Cary Grant had, and his kind of like general attitude of being kind of like indifferent to women, which if you've seen like Cary Grant scruple comedies, like bringing a baby and things like that, then he's kind of has that persona. So I think it's meant to be a kind of a bad parody of Cary Grant. And like uh, uh, the scene where they're on the beach together, where there's Marilyn fawning over him and him being kind of like indifferent, which I guess is intentional to make her want him more, I guess. That's a very, that, that is straight up full on scruple comedy 101, where you have like a, a manic pixie dream girl who's like kind of over the top fawning over a guy and he's kind of like not really into it. One of, one of my favourites. Did favorites. we not have Manic Pixie Dream Girl in the circle? <laughs> <laughs> but no, one, one of my favourite um, screwball comedies is Bringing Up Baby and that's with Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn and they have that exact same dynamic where she's kind of this like airhead over the top character and he's kind of very much like not into it at all and is like always like rolling his, rolling his eyes. It's very that that kind of moment. But I think that was the scene, the biggest struggle, apparently, I think. No, actually, I, I think I read that. So the line that she struggled with the most, we've already passed, it was when she introduces herself. Um, and I think it's her saying, it's me, sugar. Right. That line, she messed up and she said, it's sugar, me. It's <laughs> sugar, it's me. Like she couldn't get it. 
Um, but this one, they set aside three days to film it, and she got it in 20 minutes. She was, she was on a good oh, day this day. Oh, right, okay. But, um, like, one of the other things is the two, uh, Lemon and Curtis, started taking bets on how many takes it would take Marilyn to, like, film certain scenes, which is, like, wild to think that they, obviously, we don't know their production dynamic behind the scenes, but one would assume it would have been better than taking bets to see how badly Marilyn's going to do that day. Like, that seems like a bad workplace environment to be in. I feel, I feel bad for her. It's a shame. It's a real shame. But this scene, we have the, the reference to the name of the film, where Tony Curtis, as Junior, says, Jazz, I guess some like a hot. I prefer classical music. So it's kind of him trying to appear that he's... Because jazz is, like, below him. It's kind of body and more like working class whereas he's meant to be this like upper class millionaire who prefers classical music what do you think of that line i mean going back to how he's playing his character is this kind of above like he's above sugar he's not very interested and the idea of using that kind of phrase is almost a a play on i think her character and her sexuality to an extent is that whole idea of i guess some like this kind of hot action, hot paced lifestyle and uh, female, but I'm more, I like a girl who can sit down and be that wife for me and be that kind of, the character that I think Sugar wants to be once she marries a rich man. Mm, That's very true, actually. The thing with the name for me is at no point, even hearing that line, I was like, obviously the, the film title should have some kind of deeper meaning in terms of the storytelling of what's going on. And I, I, I think I only kind of got to the same conclusion as Petit. It's this thing of some like a romance to be all-consuming, uh, sweeping everything out the way. Like, all you can focus on is this, you know, this love of your life, this person that comes into your life and they sweep you off your feet and it's like heavy, hot and, and all-consuming. But that this fake romance that they are having that he seems indifferent to isn't a real like isn't a legitimate love story because it's all under false pretenses so that whole like some like it hot and some lie that's that's all i read into it cj with her hot take of the bun and that has been cj's corner that's how cj <laughs> sees it <laughs> on in a more general sense i think that the film is with this film being so groundbreaking in its content and it's like innuendos and it's sexual references and obviously the whole like cross-dressing element as well. I think it's, the title has the word hot in it and it kind of, it, it, that suggests something sexual and a bit dirty and a bit naughty. And it's kind of saying that there there is room for this in cinema. Some like it hot, some like it this way. And there's room for these kind of films to be made. And as, we, as, as I said earlier, this film kind of led to like a change in the way that comedies were made in Hollywood. One line that I wrote down is it's when Sugar comes back to the hotel and is talking to Daphne and Josephine about the meeting Junior. And she says, he's not one of the grabbers. And I thought it was interesting that kind of back then, the only type of men that were around were either, they were either a grabber or they gave zero fucks. They were either like into you so much, they're going to like touch you inappropriately or they just don't care at all. There's no kind of like in between there. That's it's pretty rough. The idea of a gentleman doesn't seem to exist in this fifties, twenties. Uh, so Osgood invites Daphne for a champagne supper on his yacht, 
and Joe convinces Daphne to keep Oswood on shore occupied so that he can take Sugar uh, on the yacht, passing as uh, Junior, and uh, pretend the yacht is his own. Uh, then there's the iconic scene of Marilyn performing I Want to Be Loved by You. Have you performed this bit? I can. I think you should do this at some point. I have not. I really want to, but that like long, uh, what was it, musical interlude, I would have no idea what to do in the stage for like a whole minute of just jazz. That's your, that's, that's, that's your burlesque section. You do, you do your strip there. You Keep sing up your baton and you become Sweet Sue. It's fine, I'll get no tap shoes on and I'll just start tapping. Delicious. <laughs> <laughs> no, but um, before that, well, during that scene of her singing, something that I found really funny is that Osgood sends Daphne this massive bouquet of flowers, which Joe ends up taking to give to Marilyn. But Basically, it's that in, that um, interaction between Osgood and Daphne from across the room of that, like trying yeah. to be sweet enough to keep them at a good enough level that you can steal things from them and take them, but like not too much that he can keep chasing you. And it's that kind of wave that she does as she's like trying to fake smile. I think it's so hilarious. It's where you're trying to flirt with the chaser and polo and get free drinks, but not so much so they're gonna like Follow take you, you home. home yeah that's that you have yeah. to you have to keep that balance so that they'll buy you <laughs> drinks at the bar but you can walk away from the bar to dance and they won't follow isn't that right Rogerzo <laughs> exactly exactly it's the it's the modern day equivalent oh no just give me just give me a shot just give me a shot do you know what you can do to enjoy my company do this shot with me one line as well that i liked is at the end of the little show Sweet Sue says to the audience, every girl in my band is a virtuoso and I intend to keep it that way. So I, I thought that was quite a funny play on words there, obviously, with virtuoso being a, a play that for was, a virgin. That was, one of the, that was one of the only lines I laughed at. I thought that was quite funny. And again, I think it's this whole film is meant to be like a play on morality that for a long time in uh, America and in, in the depictions in cinema, they like to play off a certain idea of morality. But in reality, that e- even in times like the, the, the 30s, there was this whole like undercurrent of crime and drunkenness and sexuality that was never really depicted because of the way that society wanted things to be shown. So I guess it's meant to be like the idea of like facades and how and the reality of things. One of the things that I think is not really mentioned at all, but I give this film a little bit of praise for, is like women, a full woman band is actually like really progressive when you analyse it. The fact that like being a musician is something you have to train a long, long time for and it's kind of like a respected art form and something seen as like a very um, a skill that is acquired. And I think having a band of all women is kind of like, it's, I think it gives women some, like a level of humanity that they're not afforded in other areas of this film. It's like women are seen as doing one thing in this film and it's like their only love interest and that's it. But then you, it's not even discussed that like all, you know, 12, 15, however many people there are in this band, they've all trained and they're all like self-employed basically. And I think that's like a good um, representation of women that they can be, uh, full rounded you know workers and have a purpose and have a passion that has nothing to do with love or men I, I think that is plausible actually because i mean i don't know i don't know the reality of 
traveling women's jazz bands in the 30s i don't i don't know if they existed but that's not I, your mastermind I, category what i can believe it because after the war i mean this this is set interwar after the war with so many men dying there was gaps in the workforce so i can see it plausible that there may have been women's musical acts that existed because m- many men who maybe were musicians probably died in the war so I think it is plausible, definitely. I, I find this whole era quite interesting. I mean, I think I've mentioned before, CJ, to you, I don't know if you know Petit, but my granddad was in a traveling show choir in the 30s that traveled around Europe. And so he was like a boy singer. So he, well, he was, he was like a teenager. But yeah, they like, they like recorded albums. There's like albums recorded in the 1930s of my granddad singing, which is kind of crazy. I think he, kind of, he lived a lifestyle a bit like this, where they were like on trains, traveling around, living in digs. Maybe, maybe, maybe I should ask him if there were traveling female jazz bands at the time. <laughs> and he took me on his yacht and never acted on it, and I'm still upset about it. <laughs> <laughs> Just to move the plot on a little bit, I love, I love, love, love the scene where as soon as the music is finished, we see Josephine sprinting, literally sprinting from the stage to get to her room. And I was like, this is every drag queen who wants to pull trade. This is from Dells to Polo. It's like <laughs> ripping things off, stuffing them in pockets, and you turn up and you're like, good to go. <laughs> but of course, he almost forgets his earrings and he's walking, he's climbing out the hotel window with these earrings on and only just manages to remove them before uh, Sugar clocks him. They're, they're on this yacht now, the Junior and Sugar, and he opens up about his trauma that has kind of left him impotent and frigid sexually and he's looking for someone to change that i guess this is kind of a weird flirting technique to like initiate sex i guess is that what is that what you guys think it is i i mean it's it's definitely an odd technique he his whole concept is that he met a girl and i think was it she died and then, like, yeah. since then, he's they, like... They both wore glasses and she stepped into the Grand Canyon is the fake story. <laughs> That's it. And since then, he's never been able to love a woman again. He's never been able to feel anything for another woman again. And it's basically this massive story in Ruse just to get her, uh, Marilyn or Sugar to kiss him more than once and to, like, really try and, like, woo him off of his feet because he can't feel anything and all these expensive doctors and therapists haven't told, like, have told him he'll never love someone or feel anything again. I, I guess there is still, I guess this day as well, there is a kind of a lure to purity and that people, I, I don't know if it applies to everyone, but I guess you don't always want to be with someone who's like a, a complete like whore. There's almost a slight appeal to, oh, I'm also, I'm, I'm, well, you kind of like, you get, I'm not saying this is me, but I'm saying you get people who act innocent to a, to appear more pure and that's somehow more appealing. I guess that's what he's kind of doing here that, oh, I'm, I'm not this womanizer. I'm not this ladies man. I'm actually like innocent. I, I, I'm actually like, I, I struggle to be sexual. And he's, I guess it's kind of like a technique of his to make him more appealing to her because that's what he thinks that she wants a man. For me, this is one of the most uncomfortable scenes of the entire film because I worry that this is something that is meant to be played off as a legitimate, like, romantic moment. And us as an audience, knowing that he is not who he says he is and is lying through his teeth, 
I, I wonder and I want to ask, do you think that this is meant to be shown as like um, a genuine like love connection between these two people? Or is it what I thought, which is like, you're a scumbag for leading her on like this? My, my question comes from the fact that like, that this to me makes him look even worse throughout this entire like liaison. At no point do I feel like this is a technique that is respectable. And I worry that in the, in the audience that originally watched it, it was like, oh, look how romantic, look at the efforts he'll go to for this woman. And it's like, no, like be honest, be upfront. Like, what do you think of the way that he is portrayed in terms of us as an audience? How are we meant to feel about him in this moment? I guess it shows how he would kind of do anything to to be with her and he like he he does he's he's so willing to put up this like crazy act and facade to to woo her is it perfect absolutely not it's not great what he's doing but it's not not great i don't think there's any redeeming quality to it i don't think that at at no point in in any of the things that he does with marilyn is he shown to be anything other than a liar so yeah, just to summarise that last point as, as one sentence, it's like, I would I worry that when men are lying to women in films of this period, we are meant to see it the way that you said, Drew, which is like, oh, it, it shows how much they love the person that they'll do anything just to be with them. But through a retrospective lens, I can't see any justification. Maybe it's me because I'm a stubborn, spiteful bitch. That I'm like, if you if you engage with me and the beginning of our relationship is based on lies you're completely blacklisted as soon as that truth is exposed like Marilyn is meant to be so in love with them that by the end they end up running away together it's like nah I don't know who you are because you've just lied non-stop so that's why I have a big distaste for him I guess the whole idea is that she didn't fall in love with Junior she fell in love with Josephine because they had that friendship and care there but th- this is the issue, though. It's, she I, was I kinda... out here saying, I want a millionaire. She didn't give a fuck who it was. Yeah, there's there's plenty of flaws to it, absolutely. Yeah. Um, they could have maybe done more. Because you can tell, obviously, Daphne's also into sugar. And there's 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 moments like when she covers her with the hip flask on the train. She, she's doing things to try and, like, be her friend and, I guess, kind of seduce her in many ways. But I guess they could have developed it more... Oh, oh. That you, not, th- not this, not this, <laughs> not that. Not <laughs> I guess maybe they could have focused more on a friendship and a kind of a love between Josephine and Sugar. And then maybe that the whole twist could be that she put on this act to uh, as Junior and maybe that didn't actually work. But in reality, when Sugar realizes that that Joe is Josephine, then she would realize, okay, I loved you all along. I guess there's better ways of doing it, but as I always say, like we can spend hours cross-examining these films that came out in eras where men did not treat women well, but we're, we're, we're looking at it from today's, today's perspective. Do I agree with what he did? Absolutely not, but um, I still like this film. <laughs> there is a scene that I think really, as a, good, as a good way to show that his intentions aren't fully awful, I mean, it's further on in the, scene, in the movie, so I won't say it, but I think a lot of the time he was using what he could from, like, Osgood giving Daphne stuff 
to then give it to Sugar because obviously he couldn't afford the lifestyle that Sugar wanted, so he was trying his best to give it. It was not the best way to go about it, but I think, as as the phrase goes, hell is paved with good intentions. Mm. So I think he was really trying to impress her in this lifestyle that she kind of apparently wanted. I, yeah. I think that the, the problem with Marie is, this is a trope that we see a lot where it's done both ways. Someone will pretend to be something else for the purposes of love, but I've seen the the wrapping up of that storyline done in a much better way where it does look like they end up falling for each other based on emotions and based on the people underneath. With this film, the majority of their romantic scenes together are still under this pretense. See if there was a scene where um, Sugar and Josephine as a female, where, where Sugar was like, I kind of don't care that he's a millionaire. I really just love the person that he is. Like, if, if it was explained in the same trope ways that we know this storyline to play out, I would have a better um, experience with it. But it's in the way that, like, Marilyn is obsessed with him as he is. And she doesn't, there's no kind of like, oh, I take him for whatever he is now. It's, he's, she, she's in love with his money as much as he's pretending to have the money. To play, I know we need to, like, wrap this like section, section up, but to play complete devil's advocate, again, this film is meant to be set in the depression where there was a lot so many people were going through like immense poverty and although it may seem superficial for sugar to aspire to marrying a millionaire for many people like that was kind of especially for women that was kind of their only choice of achieving their dreams in life was by finding a rich partner so i i do get it in that sense i mean we can critique it for being like quite shallow as an, an aspiration but i think it is kind of the reality of the time i don't have a problem with that aspiration i have a problem with the the playing out of the the fake storyline uh, and speaking of marrying for money uh, i do approve of the other relationship which is between <laughs> osgood and daphne that one i stand now this is interesting because it is like a a, a weird almost like a queer relationship depicting and in, in, depicted in a, in a hollywood film so yeah, whilst Sugar and uh, uh, Junior are on the boat, meanwhile, Daphne and Osgood are dancing the tango until dawn. One line that I love from Osgood is they stop mid-dance and he says, Daphne, you're leading again. And yeah, it kind of flits between the two scenes of the kind of stupid comedy of Osgood and Daphne dancing and then the, the steamy romance between Sugar and Junior. But I guess there's a different level of deception to each one. I mean, with Tony Curtis, give you an actor has range. He plays three different characters throughout this movie. Right? Even he's dressed as Junior. I can't say I wouldn't. Let's even with those glasses. I can't say I wouldn't. <laughs> CJ, do you know that that's Jamie Lee Curtis's dad? Oh, I didn't know that. Yes. That's a good fact. So Janet Lee. Now I see where she gets her handsomely woman features. Ah. Well, her, her, her parents are like old Hollywood stars. So her mum is Janet Lee, and her dad is Tony Curtis. Isn't that a gag? Oh, gag. I did not know that. Right? That's good to know. The more you know, children. So, yeah, Joe and Jerry get back to the hotel, and Jerry announces that Osgood has proposed marriage, and that as Daphne, he is accepted, and uh, this kind of very much confuses Josephine because how is that going to work as two men 
uh, but that he definitely anticipates anticipates that there'll be an instant divorce and he'll get this big cash settlement when the whole ruse is revealed. The line is, why would a guy want to marry a guy? And uh, Daphne's response is, security. That no. is, nothing has changed. That is, that is CJ's entire mantra. Um, that's, what's written, what, that's what's written on my late husband's gravestone. My favourite part is when it goes to that scene, it's kind of the opening of it, and Daphne is like lying on the bed madly in love and is like completely just in all of the night they'd had. I think it's really funny to kind of have that juxtaposition of um, Joe like mu- like rushing and like kind of because Daphne is just going with the flow and having fun with her situation, whereas Joe is clearly like in a mission to like win Sugar's heart. So it's a fun juxtaposition between the seriousness of both um, men. I was going to say women, but they're not women. Is relationships. For me, I think it's funny because, like, in, in in the time that this was made, we know it's a comedy and there's things that are intended to be funny. Uh, Joe and Sugar's relationship is meant to be the real romance and uh, the names, oh my God. Osgood and, and Daphne. Osgood and Daphne's is meant to be the comedic one. But looking at it today, I find more romance than Osgood and Daphne than I do in the other. So I'm like, I'm rooting for one and I want the other to be busted. (laughs) (laughs) So meanwhile, Spats Columbo, the gangster from Chicago and his gang have arrived in Florida. And And they all look the same and I have no idea who any of these people are. See this entire mobster uh, subplot? I was like, am I meant to recognize these people? Okay. Uh, <laughs> so no they're, att- they're attending this meeting, which is uh, under the guise of the Friends of Italian Opera, which is just a, a cover-up for a, a meeting of the National Crime Syndicate. The gang spot Joe and Jerry, and the, they immediately fear for their lives, and they realize that they must quit the band and leave the hotel immediately. So Joe calls Sugar to break things off, and he lies and says that he's moving to South America and he's going to marry someone of his family's choosing. This is a, a really sad moment. I really like, I think her acting is very strong here. And I think you can really see her pain and her sadness at this news. As, as I kind of said earlier, like I, 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 I do find it hard watching her knowing this is like one of her last film roles and how much she was suffering off screen. Because although like we see her characters has a lot of like superficial elements to it, her character is also quite deep as well yeah so at this point he um takes the bracelet that i think osgood gives to daphne as a proposal and as he's on the phone he eventually like packs up in some orchids and passes it to her door as a kind of last goodbye as like a, a kind of piece to say you know i do care for you but i have to leave mm. and i think it is kind of one of the acts that he does throughout the movie that shows that he does truly care for sugar he's just finding any way he possibly can to fit her like need and her want for this lifestyle that's something that he doesn't have so you know he's he knows she wants diamonds he knows that she wants all of these things so in his mind using a diamond bracelet is the best way to give her something to remember him by as he thinks he's going to leave her life completely forever Mm. do you know what it is i have i i'm rooting for a love story it's not this one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, this This is the point in the film where I was expecting him to do a version of Coming Clean 
And when it never happened, I was like, what, what was the point in that? Okay. CJ's just over that. I just, over I, the I, movie. This, if this, if it's, it's not that I'm over it. I'm over this, this being the love story and it not being Daphne and Osgood because theirs is based on genuine feeling. And like, I agree, it's difficult to watch Marilyn. She does a great job portraying this character. But when the character's emotions are based off of lies, I'm like, uh, like it's, it's sad to watch someone be duped this hard. If on the phone he'd done some kind of like, oh, I'm not as rich as I say, I borrowed that yacht from a friend, blah, 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 blah. And it'd been like he'd come clean and then they still fell in love after, I'd have more respect for him, but I don't. As a pre-warning, CJ, we're probably going to do lots of films in the future on this podcast that are from classic Hollywood and you're going to hate all of them. So just remember to treat them in the context of where they're being made. And although this film is groundbreaking for its time, a lot of Hollywood cinema is about presenting a certain type of romance to an American audience that is kind of aspirational, that is often like uh, based around heterosexual love. So, except oh, that. there is there is an aspirational romance here, and it's Daphne and Osgood because I aspire <laughs> to have that exact same relationship. <laughs> Marrying an old man bracelet? for his money. Where's my bracelet? Yeah. Okay, so Joe and Jerry are escaping from the hotel. And the, the mobsters realize those dames ain't dames as they're climbing down the hotel uh, balcony. And they realize that they're the musicians from Chicago. The gang chase them and somehow Joe and Jerry once again manage to evade them. But they end up hiding under a table at the banquet of this event in probably the most dangerous place they could be. But the leader of the event, who's called Little Bonaparte, has spats and his men killed as he was getting too big for his spats. That's the line from the film. But once again, Joe and Jerry are witnesses to this crime and they flee from the hotel and they manage to do a, a very miraculous quick change back into drag. And Joe, dressed as Josephine, he sees Sugar on stage performing once more, saying she'll never love again and she's through with love. He goes on stage and kisses her as Josephine. The thing that shocks me is that they have like a maybe four or five second long kiss and people don't have a reaction until it's finished. So it's like, rather than seeing two women kiss and everyone's immediately going, wow! It's like they kiss for five seconds and then everyone's going, right, you're finished. Great. Wow! (laughs) Marilyn Monroe, the original lesbian icon. Right? I know. That's what I would. That's what I was gonna. I, I forgot this moment happens, and it, it is quite a shocking, essentially girl on girl kiss here for a, a film from the fifties. Maybe that's why the Catholic Church branded it morally objectionable. What did the Catholic Church brand as that? I know, right? <laughs> yeah. So I guess at this point, Sugar realizes that Joe is both Josephine and Junior, and I think, I think she realizes that all of these people that she's come to know, she cares about all of them, and they're they're all this one person that she wants to be with. So they manage to escape the gangsters and Jerry persuades Osgood to take Daphne and Josephine, their female personas, away on his yacht. And Sugar manages to, at the last minute, jump on as well. And it's the final scene where there's the kind of the conclusion to the two romances where Joe tells Sugar that he's not good enough for her and that being with him she would always get the fuzzy end of the lollipop so i guess here you are gonna get him coming clean and admitting that he's not who he is or how in how, two how... minutes in two yeah, minutes that's the conclusion yeah so he's saying that he's not good enough for her but at the end of the day 
Sugar wants him anyways. That's that's why it's a, a real true romance that we should all love and root for. Meanwhile, in the front seat, the real romance is unfolding. <laughs> <laughs> this is... Right, this... CJ, of course, you only watched this today for the first time. This is one of the most like iconic moments in like cinematic history. Is this final scene of this film? You've probably like heard the lines before, but this is Jerry as Daphne listing all the reasons that they cannot marry. Uh, she talks that she's got like a smoking habit, that she's infertile, that that uh, she's not built the same as a normal woman. But for every single one, he has like a comeback that is kind of like, oh no, it's fine. The one that I the, the one that I laughed the most at though was she says, "I've had a terrible past for the past three years. I've been living with a saxophone player." And the response from Os- Osgood is, I forgive you, which I think is absolutely hysterical. Um, but of course, the, the, the final line of the film that's very, very iconic in cinema history is she pulls her wig off and says, I'm a man. And then the response from Osgood in perfect comic timing is, well, nobody's perfect. So that, that is the movie concluded. It's a great, it's which, a great closing fact, line. Uh, that was meant to be just a placeholder line until they wrote something better and they just ended up running with it. I think it's I think it's hysterically funny. I, I think it's I, I, I laugh out loud at that still to this day, and I've the seen the blossoming of a true romance. Yes, I agree. <laughs> Don't you think? Also, I've just written this is in my notes. I've written down when he takes the wig off at this point in the front of the boat, he looks like a young Jason Segel. Rewatch it. Who the fuck is that? How I met your mother? How I met your mother? Oh, what right. Sarah Marshall. I say well, okay. I say Jason Segel, but maybe that's me being weird. As a seagull. Oh, I've always said Seagull, I don't know. What do you say, what do you say for tea? Deciding vote. I say, I say he doesn't exist to me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know who that man is, I'm so sorry. Um, Oh, I kind kind of see that. He's got a slight Jack Lemmon about the eyes, I can see that in him. No, for me, I think the ending of this is so perfect, and it's a really good way to end off this as a comedy movie, because it's such a perfect one-liner that people remember when they leave the cinema. Yeah. Especially back in those days when going to the cinema was like a full-day thing. You had mm. your A movie, you had your B movie, and they were both quite long. So it was a really good way to kind of keep the audience like laughing until the very end with that scene. I'm just, Unless if, you're you could, if you could see CJ's face right now, you would have not survived back then. You could not have sat through two movies. Two movies back-to-back and they're both long. I don't think <laughs> I want an episode of Killing Eve and that's it. Mm. But yeah, I think I think it's a great conclusion to the film. And as I said before, I think the comedy here at the script is r- so well written. The jokes still land to this day. And I think that's a real testament to how funny this film is that you, we can watch this now and we can still laugh at it. Well, at least... A normal person will laugh at it. A normal, <laughs> well-rounded, a normal, well-rounded human will laugh at it. I'll, just, I'll say my final thoughts and, and my only real criticism of this movie. I really wish they would have not focused on the gangster scenes as long, because yeah. that really long scene where it's a massive farce just to get to the fact that the mobs, the main mobster who's chasing them, is killed. Because you get a subplot upon a subplot of how he's going to get killed and why he's going to get killed. Yeah. And it becomes a bit too confusing. I would have rather focused on the mobsters come back for them to have a reason to run away again. But it ended by them getting arrested and like something quick and easy to get them off. It's yeah. like a two hour long film and you're going to dedicate 35 minutes to this subplot of why the mobsters are back. I don't need to know that. Just tell yeah. me that they're bad guys and I'm on board. I, yeah, I agree. That's, I mean, 
I'll, I'll go ahead and give my score. I, I give this film an 8 out of 10. Um, and you're going to be you're going to be shocked, CJ. I think it's so groundbreaking in comedy. And I think that this, the way that this film influenced cinema and comedy after it, I think it's, we, we have to appreciate that. I think it's, it has great performances from the three leads. I, I have no real issues with the acting. I think a lot of the supporting roles are great as well. I think the guy that plays Osgood is hysterical. And even a lot of like the, the minor characters, like Sweet Sue makes me laugh. Like I just, I love this film. I love, I love the story. I love the humor. It, it makes me laugh out loud and I've seen it many times and it came out a long, long, long time ago. So I, I, I really appreciate it. Like Petit said, I think there are issues with pacing and the plot in general. I think some scenes go too quickly, some drag far, far, far too much. Some scenes are unnecessary and go on for too long. And I, I think, yeah, the whole mobster subplot, it could be shortened significantly. I think there's no need for, I mean, there's a good like 10, 15 minutes before we even meet the main characters. Like I think that's kind of unnecessary. So that's why it loses two points. But I think on the whole, I think it's a hysterical film. I think it's like essential viewing for anyone that does drag or like cinema. So that's my score. So for me, I agree. I, I think I would give it an eight. Five of those points purely go on to Marilyn's dresses throughout the movie alone. I mean... Oh, that one with the, no, the, with the, with the, the backless dress, that's stunning. Yeah, so stunning. But I completely agree with what um, Rue said. I think it is such a good comedy and it really does stand today. The writing is still really good. I think it really paved the way for so many um, comedic movies, even like to make so many plots kind of follow this same idea in modern cinema. Mm. So I really like the fact that it's paved the way and it really still stands as a movie. Where I do deduct points is the same with the pacing and the mobster scenes. There's far too many subplots that you have to try and understand throughout the movie rather than fully appreciating the main plot and the main comedy throughout it. Mm. I think that is the only way I would like subtract two points. Um, this is this is complete conjecture. I've got no idea how true this is. That I think maybe with with films like this in that era, they're trying to make it as marketable as possible. And I guess that kind of still applies to Hollywood. So maybe a film that was purely based around A, romance, and B, cross-dressing would not appeal to a male market. And that's like a, a, a huge section of like the Hollywood audience. So The mobsters were to try and draw yeah, in that crowd. I think they had to have that in just to keep the men happy to a degree. Because back then there really weren't many films that were just made for women. There was like, like you have like your Douglas Silk like melodramas and stuff that are very like a women audience intended. But for things like this, it's still much, it's still very much made for a male audience as well as a female audience. So I think that's why you have the mobsters, why you have a lot of the, the sexualization of Marilyn. That is for the male audience to make them draw, to, to draw them into the film. That's, that's what I think. I mean, I'm, I'm going to admit to being basic and saying that my scores are based in purely on two factors entertainment and enjoyability and secondly like I engage in film media to be enlightened about the human race and to like what is the overarching thing that I take away from a movie that's why I always ask myself like what did this teach me about humanity what did I learn what character struggle did I see I was going to give this a four but I'll round it up to a five um I, I, I think I'm, it's getting five out of five for like enjoyability. It's, it's a good comedy. It does have great jokes. There's a lot of fun in it. 
the second part, which is like, what did I take away from it about humanity? I, I, there's there's no real like lesson learned in this for me. There's nothing that there's no journey I really saw with any of the characters, and I, I, I'm biased because it's older, and I dislike older cinema and the storytelling devices used in older cinema. But I just think that the only like, old thing you like is old men for their money. Um, but just for me, it's that thing of like with other films, there's at least a hint of like here was the here was the deep hit of like humans are this and with this all I got was that it was pandering a love story that wasn't based in truth and the real love story was shunned to the side because it was a gay romance um so I'm gonna give it a five out of ten well you know what like the whole point of this podcast is to express our honest opinions and that's what we're doing here and it's not fun when we just talk about films that we love and just only see nice things we're we're supposed to be honest here and give our like full critiques and yeah like I think your, your points are valid uh, it just for, it's for me it's just i and it's crazy because so far i think this is this is my lowest rated this is below two wong fu wow. and i stand by that wow because i think two wong fu as troubled and flawed as it is i got some semblance of a humanitarian aspect after it but this is just i'm giving it a five and i don't apologize <laughs> maybe you should <laughs> Maybe I'll quit drag. That's that's the truth. Please do. So I think we're gonna wrap up here. Thank you all for listening. Uh, we're gonna do a little plug of social. So Petit, where can the children find you? On Instagram, you can follow me at PetitMoreX. That's P-E-T-I-T-E-M-O-R-T-X. And on Twitter at LePetitMoreX, which is the same, just with an L E on the front. Because she's French. Uh, Rujazzle, where can the children find you? They can find me at Rujazzle on all platforms. R-U-J-A-Z-Z-L-E. And how about you, CJ? You can find me at the CJ Banks on all social media. Uh, Follow me and like my shit. Yes. And one last thing, of course, make sure you follow our Instagram for the pod that is at Screen Queens with a -A K-W-E-E-N-S for the Queens. We are now... This pod is now available on all platforms, including Apple Pods. So make sure you subscribe there and rate and review our podcast and show it some love. And it's also available on Spotify and all the other main podcast platforms. We just had to, had to, it took a couple of weeks basically for them to be approved. But yes, it'll be now there every single Wednesday, a new episode of Screen Queens on all of your podcast platforms. And it's time to reveal who is our next special guest and what film we are going to be reviewing Ooh. up next. Isn't that right, Rajaz? Let yes. them know. So I mentioned earlier that Some Like It Hot is ranked as the, the best comedy film of the 20th century by the AFI. And next week, we are looking at the second best comedy film of the 20th century. Um, that is, of course, Tootsie, where we have good old Dustin Hoffman getting up in drag um, with a, a, an Oscar-winning supporting role from a young Jessica Lang. So get ready for that. And who is our special guest? Now, we have the Maltese diva, the icon, Miss Chucky, joining us next week for that movie. <laughs> and that's because it's one ginger icon to another. Exactly, exactly. So we'll see you guys next time. Thank you all for listening and we'll catch you next time on Screen Queens. Bye. Bye. Bye.